Welcome to the first installment of Off the Shelf, a podcast focused on the objective examination of the life and ministry of William Branham. If you don't have a clue who William Branham was, which is 99.9% of the population of the planet, then this podcast is not for you. But if you do know who William Branham was, then you just might learn something, and I do think we can keep your interest. At least that's what we're hoping. With me is my co-host, Brian Lynch, coming to us from the land of Lincoln. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Rod. Hello, everyone. Brian is a graphic designer and author from Northeast Tennessee. He's the father of four beautiful children with a fifth set to arrive in less than a month. Exciting times, Brian. He is an avid fan of sports, music, conversation, coffee, and the pursuit of truth. In spite of all of this, Brian is an admitted introvert and often has to be coaxed out of hiding to participate in public discourse, a task in which I was obviously successful. I uh, have personally found Brian to be both extremely thoughtful and a deep thinker, and I'm very glad to have you with us, Brian. Thank you, Rod. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, For those of you who don't know Rod, Rod Bergen is the president of Power to Change, which is the Canadian affiliate of Campus Crusade for Christ International. Prior to that, he spent 14 years working as a senior executive for the second largest private company in Canada, and Rod is a CPA by profession. So Rod, first off, why are we doing a podcast? Well, the primary reason is I spent three years researching the life and ministry of William Branham. I'm going to go into that in a little bit later, but a lot of people don't know the research that we found. And secondly, It's much easier to listen to a podcast than it is to read a website. People can listen to this on their commute, and I'm hoping we can connect with a lot of people. Uh, So true, Rod. I think it's not only easier to listen to the pod uh, than to read a website. I I think there are also benefits to the format. It's more conversational in tone, um, and and I think it's easy to dismiss or demonize uh, words on a page or a computer screen, but there's something about having real people engaged in real conversation that uh, hopefully improves the quality of uh, communication. Exactly. Now, Brian, why did we name the podcast Off the Shelf? It actually was your suggestion. Where did it come from? Okay, so uh, growing up in the message, uh, when we were faced with a question that had no apparent uh, answer, we were all of us were often told to, quote, put it on the shelf, uh, a phrase borrowed from William Branham that basically means you know, to put it away, stop thinking about it or looking at it, questioning it, and wait for God to reveal his answer. Um, now, I I think there are times where putting a question on the shelf is a reasonable thing to do. Uh, the key difference is that I think the shelf is a temporary place for questions or issues uh, for which you've exhausted all of your currently known resources for finding an answer. But in the message, we were taught to put questions on the shelf instead of digging deeper Uh, which I think is unbiblical and uh, counterproductive to finding the truth. And uh, as a result, I think many things ended up on the shelf which don't belong there. So 
the pod title off the shelf basically means that we plan to do just the opposite here. We want to take those issues and questions that have traditionally been put on the shelf in the message and get them off the shelf to examine them biblically, historically, and uh, factually as best we can. Thanks, Brian. I, I agree with that. Uh, in fact, uh, the pastor of the church uh, we've been attending said that the worst thing you can do as a Christian is to put something on the shelf because basically what you're doing is relinquishing uh, that passage of scripture. You're just not paying attention to it. So we are going to systematically take off the shelf passages in the Bible that the message causes many to give up on, and we're going to give scripture its proper place, which is off the shelf and in our minds and hearts. Absolutely, Rod. Now, the other thing we want to do uh, on this first episode is to introduce you to our audience uh, by way of an interview. Thanks, Brian. And in our next episode, we're going to turn the tables and you're going to be able to hear Brian's journey. We thought it was worthwhile to, uh, for both of us, uh, that you know a little bit of our backgrounds, where we're coming from and why we are, uh, why we think we're qualified to host this podcast. So um, let's start the journey. Sounds like a plan, Rod. Uh, I guess, first of all, we'll go all the way back and, and I want to ask you, how you came into the message in the first place. Well, I was raised, Brian, in a oneness Pentecostal church. I came to Christ as a young boy. I was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ at the age of around 13, I think, and also experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit in my early youth. I had issues with my faith in uh, my senior year of high school. I spent the last half of, uh, of my senior year and my first year of college pursuing a hedonistic lifestyle, which if anybody has gone to university probably knows what that means, because uh, that's what most universities, most university students do. I came into the message in May 1973. Uh, it's probably before you were born, Brian, but... Slightly, just barely before I got here. <laughs> just barely. So, um, as I said, I came into the message in May 1973, at the end of my first year of college, and came back to the Lord in a church in Surrey, British Columbia, uh, in Canada, which is about 25 miles east of Vancouver. The church was mostly young people at the time. There was about 30 to 35 people. It was loosely part of the Jesus People movement, uh, which, if, if you could say uh, anything about it, was pretty loose. And the church was just starting to dabble in the message when I came back to Christ. And when I say just starting to dabble, uh, no one quoted William Branham in their services. It was not uncommon for our services to be four to five hours long, but most of that time consisted of people praying and seeking God. Service was started at three o'clock in the afternoon, so we didn't interfere with uh, other church services that were being held in the community. And uh, then our service would go, I mean, I can remember going uh, a service going to 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And I remember the the fervent desire that all of us had to serve Christ with everything that we had. Over the next three to four years after I, I started attending that church, the church became more committed to the message. And during that time, I met my sweetheart, Cindy, my wife-to-be. We were married in 1975, had our first child in 1977, and uh, have now four children and eight grandchildren. Okay, in the process of you uh, coming out of the message, um, did you ever hear it said that you never really believed it? I know that's a common theme that I hear now about people that have left is that they never really believed the message. So, Rod, did you believe the message? Absolutely. I am first and foremost a Christian. I have been 
a Christian since uh, my early youth when I surrendered my heart to Christ. I've had a number of supernatural things happen to me through my life. The result of this was that I knew that God was personally interested in me. Mm-hmm. I don't understand that. In fact, it completely boggles my mind that the creator of the universe would actually be interested in me, but I do know it to be true, that God is interested in me. Uh, as a result of um, um, interaction with the people in the church and the message, I became convinced without a shadow of a doubt that William Branham was a prophet. I lived my life as best I could according to the message of the hour. I was the worship leader for 35 years in what was to become probably the largest message church in North America. We were at close to a thousand people. I was also the treasurer of that church for 35 years. I was a member of the board of trustees for probably 35 years. So it, it's, it, it was a long, you know, almost four decades that I was in the message. Right. So what started your journey out of the message after that much time and energy invested in it? Well, the church was my life. The message was my life. And uh, a couple of deacons, myself, and one of the associate ministers discovered the pastor of our church had covered up the sexual abuse of a minor. A 15-year-old boy had been seduced by a woman in her mid-30s, a mother of three children. Wow. And I tried to deal with this terrible sin in a biblical manner. What was really disturbing is that we found out that the pastor had lied to us. He initially told us that he did not find out about this terrible act until the young man was 21 years of age, 20 or 21. But it eventually became apparent when we spoke to the young man and it said, we carried everything out, uh, myself, the deacons, trustees, trying to do things according to scripture. And when we spoke to the young man and some of the witnesses, it rapidly became apparent that the pastor knew about this uh, within six months of the start of the abuse. He had not only withheld the information from the woman's husband, but he also had not told the young boy's parents what was happening. Wow. So it's a long, long story of, of, of what happened, but virtually the entire leadership of the church eventually asked for the pastor's resignation in a letter that we gave him in September of 2009. And what really started to surprise me was that all sorts of support from message ministers started coming in for the pastor, undermining the board and, and undermining our ability to do things according to scripture. They really didn't care about the facts. And as I said, we try to do everything according to Scripture, got testimonies from witnesses in accordance with 1 Timothy 5, 19. Mm. Um, you know, you're not supposed to accuse an elder unless you have a testimony from two or three witnesses. But it was clear that we were going to be in a terrible fight from those that supported the pastor and from a number of people outside of the church, but who were who were pastors and were lining up to support the pastor of our church, even though... They refused to judge what Moses said, judge righteously. They didn't care about the evidence. They didn't want to know about the evidence. So I eventually left the church when I realized this was going to be a huge fight. I was extremely disappointed in the ministers in the message. There were some ministers that simply kept their heads down, didn't say anything. Mm. But in light of the terrible sin that had been committed by this pastor, how could they keep quiet? Paul certainly 
pointed out things where people were just completely off the rails. And many others supported my former pastor. But again, I, I kept asking the question, how could they do this when he had committed such a, a heinous sin? And I, I came to the realization in, internally that either the ministers of the message had perverted William Branham's message, which was why they either stood behind the pastor and his sin, or they stayed on the sidelines afraid to stand up for the truth. And these were guys who would say, we're not afraid to call out sin. We call sin, sin. But they either ignored the sin or they kept in their own church with their head down and and wouldn't even tell their members of their church what was going on. Or there was something fundamentally wrong with the message. Wow. That's that's some compelling uh, evidence. So what what events brought you to the decision? I mean, obviously, uh, the situation you described is enough to make you to make you think. But what actually led you to making the decision to leave the message? I, I actually didn't start with an aim to leave the message. I was a Christian. I believed in Christ, His death and resurrection. I believed He died to provide the payment the sacrifice for my sins. I believed that he had sent a prophet to forerun his second coming. And I believed that that prophet was William Branham. But I had big trust issues with the ministry because of the moral failure of my pastor and how everyone was, was acting. And I had a lot of doubt. How could a man who had willfully covered up sin and had lied to me on several occasions stand in front of a congregation of message believers and say, we are the final voice to the final age. Something was desperately wrong, but I didn't know what was wrong. About this time, a non-message Christian friend of mine gave me a book by a guy by the name of Tim Keller. And I started reading that book and another book of Tim Keller's after I finished the first one because I was so impacted by it spiritually. There was a book that Tim Keller wrote called The Reason for God. It's an apologetics book that is explaining to unbelievers that, that, that God exists and why he exists and why we need to believe in God. So in this, so it's, it's really not aimed at Christians, but really is aimed at non-Christians and helping Christians to explain their faith to non-Christians. But in this book, Keller states this, a faith without some doubt is like a human body without any antibodies in it. He went on to say that people who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe, as they do, are going to find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. And what I came to realize through, through it's really only a paragraph in this book, is that doubts should only be discarded after long reflection. Doubts actually can be a protection for you. Somebody could say, well, you know, NASA didn't really land on the moon. It's a complete fake. And you'd say, oh, you know, I really doubt that. What evidence do you have? And the doubt, otherwise, you'd, I mean, if you had no doubt, you'd believe anything anybody told you. So I came to the, to the understanding that believers in Christ should acknowledge and wrestle with their doubts. And not just their own doubts, but their friends' doubts and their neighbors' doubts. And it's not just sufficient to hold beliefs because I inherited them. Right or because somebody told me that something was true. So I started out trying to prove it true. I had doubts. I said, okay, is this doubt a valid doubt or a, or a good doubt? So my motto became assume nothing, question everything. <laughs> also, the other thing, I had some serious issues with very virtually every minister in the message. 
So I decided first to focus on the Bible. Could I trust it? And as you know, the message is basically a King James Version only group. So I started looking at whether that belief was correct. Could I trust the King James Version only? How did the New Testament end up on our hands? Where did we get it? Could I trust the newer version? Some people would say they're New Age versions. Why did they say that? Why did some of the newer versions have some words missing? Was the King James Version really the best version? So I had all these questions that I had. So I started researching the Bible. And now you have to understand, Brian, I'm a researcher by training. I'm a CPA, and I'm specifically one that specialized in income tax law, and even more specifically in international tax law. I spent 17 years with one of the largest accounting firms in the world, a predecessor firm to PricewaterhouseCoopers. I ran one of their national tax practice areas in Canada, also ran their tax practice here in the province of BC. After that, I joined a major multinational corporation headquartered in Vancouver. I was a senior executive, reported directly to the chairman of an organization that when I left had 39,000 employees and over $7 billion in sale. The only point of saying that is that I do know how to research important issues. In fact, people relied on the research that I performed to sometimes make almost billion-dollar decisions, certainly well into the nine figures. So... You know, I knew that if I was doing research, you have to do it right, and people depended on this research. So I spent around nine months researching the New Testament, and I rapidly came to the conclusion that it was trustworthy. Although in the process, my understanding of the Bible changed considerably, and probably that's something we should talk about in a future podcast, because I've looked at this in uh, unbelievably detailed fashion, uh, where we got the Bible, and, and I think... Our, our listeners would find some of my conclusions coming from my research really interesting. So I came to the conclusion that the Bible was reliable, but that the King James Version was actually based on six incomplete Greek manuscripts, and that the new translations like the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, or the ENT were even more reliable than the King James Version. Also, 400-year-old English makes it difficult to understand, sure. particularly when we think you, you know what a word means, but 400 years ago, it, means some, it meant something completely different. So after coming to that conclusion, I turned my attention to the message. Now, again, I didn't try to, I wasn't trying to prove the Bible false. I was trying to prove it true, and I did. So I said, okay, you know what? I can trust the Bible. Right. So then I started trying to prove the message to be true. Because I knew if I proved it to be true, then I, I would then be faced with how, how to determine how message pastors had twisted the message to al- allow the acceptance of the sin to be okay. But the place to start was the message. And if there was a problem with the message, then I had a much bigger problem to deal with. So I started this research. I really didn't have any significant issues with William Brown's ministry. I had no problems on my problem shelf. There are people that said, you know, you got to take this, put it on the shelf. I, I couldn't really say I had, I had many significant issues on the shelf. But when I started focusing on William Brown's prophecies, his visions, his testimonies, major issues started to show up very quickly. And I actually, initially, I couldn't believe what we we're finding was true. I, I, honestly, I, I, I couldn't accept it. For example, the municipal bridge vision is well known by all message believers. And so it's something we could prove historically to be true, except we couldn't. <laughs> so I researched the building of the bridge to see if we could find any record of anyone being killed during its construction. What became clear is that there was a bunch of people who were killed in the late 1800s in the construction of the Big Four Bridge, which was just upriver from the municipal bridge. But there was no record of 16 people being killed in the construction of the municipal bridge. 
So, said doing a lot of research, you know, the Encyclopedia of Kentucky, there's an Encyclopedia of Louisville. He started researching a ton of stuff, everything I could find. And I came across a slideshow that was put together by Perry Green, and somebody had posted on YouTube. So I watched it, and because somebody said, Rod, you need to watch this because he's talking about the Municipal Bridge. Right in the middle of it, he points to a section of the bridge. He's got a picture of the Municipal Bridge. He points at a section of the bridge, and he said, this is the section of the bridge that collapsed during the construction of the bridge, and that's what caused the death of the 16 workers that were on the bridge. So I thought, wow, Perry's got to have some knowledge what happened. So I called Perry Green and I knew Perry. So I, over the years, I got to know a lot of ministers in the message. So I called Perry and I said, Brother Perry, I got a question. How did you know the specific section of the bridge that you highlighted in your video was the one that collapsed? Anybody from Texas, please excuse me. I'm going to try to imitate a Texan accent because <laughs> this is what, this is what, I'm on the other side of the phone with Perry Green. And he said, Brother Rod, you got to understand that the prophet of God took me under the bridge. And he pointed up at that section, specific section of the bridge. And he said, Brother Perry, that's the section that fell in the river. And that's the section where them 16 men fell off and died in the river, drowned. And I said, okay, that's really interesting, Brother Perry. So Brother Branham told you the section of the bridge that fell in the river. And he told you that that's the section, that, that, that failure, the, the collapse of that section of the bridge caused the death of the 16 men. That's exactly right, Brother Ron. And I said, but Brother Perry, do you have any historical evidence that actually took place? I said, Brother Rod, the prophet of God wouldn't have lied to me. And I said, okay, no, I appreciate that, Brother Perry, but I'm asking you a slightly different question. Do you have any historical evidence that anyone died in the construction of the bridge? I said, Brother Rod, I don't think you heard me right. The prophet of God wouldn't lie to me. So I said, okay, great. So you don't have any historical evidence. So that, you know, back to the drawing board. So again, I'm, I'm just researching. I'm just trying to find out, did this happen or not? Somebody should know. Absolutely. So I phoned George Smith, who was a good friend of mine, and uh, William Branham's son-in-law. George and Rebecca used to live up in, in, uh, in the area here where I live in Canada. So I phoned Brother George, and I said, Brother George, I can't find any evidence that anyone died in the construction of the municipal bridge. You are my last hope to prove this true. Are you aware, Brother George, of anyone dying in the construction of the bridge? And his response floored me. He said, no one died. You're right. No one died. I said, what? No one died? He said, no, no one died in the construction of the bridge. I said, really? Well, how can you explain that? He said, well, we can't explain it, Brother Rod, but we still believe. <laughs> so I had a big problem with that because I had this passage of Scripture that William Branham quoted and said, you know, that we were to look and judge him by this. And that was this. If any prophet presumes to speak anything in my name that I have not authorized him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. That prophet must die. Now, if you say to yourselves, how can we tell that a message is not from the Lord? Whenever a prophet speaks in my name and the prediction is not fulfilled, then I have not spoken it. The prophet has presumed to speak it, so you need not fear him. They'd haul him out because he presumed to speak at the beginning of that in the name of the Lord, didn't authorize it, kill him. So in Moses' day, based on the evidence I had, William Branham would have been put to death for that one sure. failed prophecy. So I just want to reiterate for the listeners that 
you you said that George Smith clearly admitted to you verbally that no one died in the municipal bridge, as was stated by William Brennan. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, they know nobody died. Like, like, and 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 so what? What they what people are saying is that well, they've got all these other theories. But let me ask you this question. If 16 people, now, some, some folks have died, have done some research, actually trying to disprove me, and, and we may talk about this. I think we'd probably do a whole thing on the Municipal Bridge podcast, but really interesting and because some folks tried to prove me, and they actually found out that actually two people had died on the bridge. <laughs> One person got hit in the head with a crank in his head and died. Another person actually did fall off the bridge, landed on a barge, and died. So two people died in the bridge. Both of these deaths made the front page of the newspapers. And there are copies around, even though Voice of God says everything disappeared in the flood. They've got microfilms of all of these newspapers that you can go to and search through in the university in Indiana. Secondly, the other thing is that like, ask this question. If 16 men died in a bridge construction accident, don't you think that their wives, that their children... Wow. that their parents would have made such a fuss that they would have made at least the bridge to be a memorial to their deaths. Certainly, you know, there was a, an accident on a bridge here in Canada, the construction, uh, when I was just a small child. And th they called it the memorial. It's a memorial bridge. And because of the people that died in the construction. So it's, it's just inconceivable that, that 16 people died and nobody told anybody about it, particularly when the other deaths were reported on the front page of the paper. Yeah, that doesn't add up. Okay, Rob, we'll wrap this up here and continue this interview in the next episode of the podcast. Uh, for everyone else, if you would like to send us an email, there's a link on the offtheshelf.life website, or you can email rod at rod at offtheshelf.life, or you can reach me at brian, that's brian with a y, at offtheshelf.life. We also want to let everyone know that we're going to be interviewing Jeff Jenkins, the former pastor of Believers Christian Fellowship in Lima, Ohio, and he will be our first interview on Off the Shelf coming up soon. We'll talk to everybody on our next podcast. Worry about itself today. I'm coming on the shelf today. I'm coming on the shelf.